Turn, if you would, to the second chapter. Turn to the second chapter of the book of Romans. You're not hearing it. It's on. (laughs) There. Now can you hear it? Hmm. The second chapter of the book of Romans. Um, What we've been talking about, the book of Romans is about the gospel. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. That was Romans chapter 1 at the middle of it. But then we started the bad news, because if you're going to have the good news, you have to start with the bad news. I was reading the introduction to a book this week by a Puritan writer, a preacher, and he said, my hardest job is to make the sinners sad and the believers joyful. Well, this part of the book is trying to make the sinners sad. It's trying to make the sinners recognize what they are apart from God and about for, apart from Christ. So we talked about God's wrath. Last week we talked about the downward spiral. The fact that the people would sin, and as a consequence of the sin, God would let them do what they wanted to do. In essence, sin was both the cause and the effect. He let them sin as the punishment for their sin. And we ended with this wonderful list. You remember this from last week, right? What the wicked do, wickedness, evil, greed, depravity, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slander, God-hater, insolent, arrogant, boastful, senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. We had a long discussion about what Ruth means. They invent ways of doing evil and they disobey their parents. Now, aren't you glad that this isn't us? Yes, at least. What did I leave off? Pride. Hmm. I didn't make up the list. (laughs) It's the last one on the list. We are not going to order the list. We actually had a discussion last week, or at least we didn't have a discussion last week, though somebody wanted to have the discussion last week. They wanted to put these in order. You know, which ones are worse? And I wouldn't touch it. The reality is there are sins that are worse than other sins. There are sins that have more consequences, uh, that have more effects. There are sins that are worse. But in the context of the book of Romans, we're looking at what does it take to demonstrate that you're disobedient to God? And in that case, any sin will do. Any sin is evidence of a violation of the will of God. Thus, the argument from the book of Romans is you are without excuse. What we're talking about in the last half of chapter 1, 
all of chapter 2 and into chapter 3 is the fact that you are without excuse. But wait a minute. I'm not as bad as those people over there. I don't do everything on this list. I'm, I mean, you should see my neighbor. He is really bad. My neighbor's on staff of the church, so I shouldn't <laughs> talk about him too much. And he also happens to be married to my sister. But <laughs> Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you, you have no excuse. We've reiterated this the last two weeks. These, this chapter, last week, this week, next week, is not talking about those really bad people. It's talking about all of humanity apart from Christ. Therefore, you have no excuse. O oh man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very th- same things. You know, we go through this list... And we go, yeah, those gossips are really bad. Did you hear about that person gossiping the other day? Did you hear what they said about you? And we work our way through the list condemning people. And the argument is that while we are condemning them, we are condemning ourselves because we practice the same things. Now, there's two ways of looking at this. One of them is that we do, in fact, do the sin, the particular sin that we are accusing other people of doing. And psychologically, there's a lot of truth to this. You know, I see in my children a reflection of my sin, so I condemn in them what I see in myself but don't want anybody to know about. The sins that I struggle with, I go to you and I go, my, you're really wretched because you do that. And unfortunately, in our modern media age, our sins usually come to the surface. And we have headlines of people committing sins that they used to condemn in others. So that is one way of looking at this passage. The second one is a lot more broader is a lot broader than that and it's simply this. You condemn sin in others. But while condemning sin in others, all you are doing is highlighting the fact that you are a sinner also. Chapter 2 is dealing with the fact that there are those of us, not them, us who think that we're better than everyone else, that we have some ground to stand on to look at other people and say, you, chapter one is about you, but it's not about me. In particular, the second half of the chapter is going to deal with the Jews specifically. You have the law, you think you're cool, you think you're great, you think you're okay, you have the law, you are circumcised, you're in the covenant, you think you're off the hook, and you're not. Because if you are breaking the law, and you are breaking the law, you are condemned, and you need salvation. The first half of it is dealing with this idea that I am judging other people for being sinners. And while doing so, all I am doing 
is judging myself. I mean, let's look at this. I've talked about this before in here. You know, you have a child. um, The child comes running up to you and says, that's not fair. You know, a nice, nebulous, means-nothing statement. What it means is they didn't get their way, so something's not fair. But it's interesting if you back out of that particular situation and start thinking about it at a higher level, what would inspire somebody to say, that's not fair? What would drive them to have that idea that it's supposed to be fair? That there's supposed to be a right and a wrong? And that somehow the, my right has been violated and somebody else has done a wrong? Well, we know from this chapter that the law is written on our hearts. And we may work real hard at shoving it down. Our hearts may become darkened and hardened, as we'll see in just a moment. But in the midst of all of that, we look at other people and we condemn them for doing some action. And what we're really saying is we're acknowledging the fact that there is a right and wrong that there is a standard, and that it is being violated. I, in my hardened, darkened heart, may become self-serving and view that simply from my perspective. You know, I don't care which of these lists you do, as long as I'm not the object of it. That's how most of us feel, okay? As I've said before, my kids are fighting and screaming and shouting, and all I want them to be is quiet. I don't care if they love each other as long as they're just quiet about it. That's the way we are oftentimes with the sins of others. We look at others and we judge them. And while we are judging them, we are judging ourselves because we're acknowledging there is a right and a wrong and that we collectively have violated it. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on all those who practice such things. What are the such things? Look at the list behind me. Okay. Or, or, is he talking about those who judge other people while themselves not fulfilling the requirements of the law? The answer is yes. I judge you for not measuring up to a standard that I myself have no chance at all of meeting. Yet I feel superior to you because I'm judging you even though I can't do it. Huh. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Why do we know that? We know that the judgment of God Now, he is talking to believers. So obviously they have been inspired by the Holy Spirit to recognize God's judgment. But I think he's talking more broadly than that. I think all of humanity knows that there's going to be a judgment. All of humanity knows that someday, somehow, there's going to be a standard that I'm going to be judged against. And between now and then, we do a lot of different things. 
First off, we tried to deny the existence of the standard. Secondly, we tried to adjust the standard to meet our particular behavior. I mean, that's what the Pharisees did. They came with a tremendous, great, outward, external, legalistic list of things that you had to do because it was the things they could do. And Christ comes along and says, but what about the condition of your heart? And they say, well, they just killed him. So we either deny the existence of the standard or we try to change the standard, but in reality we acknowledge the fact that there is a standard and at some time, at some point in the future, we are going to be judged by that standard. Now, at this point, I need to throw in a little side discussion. We, as a society are very judgmental toward people who are judgmental. If there's one unforgivable sin that all of society today recognizes, it is being judgmental. Don't do that. When we understand the Word of God, when we proclaim the Word of God, We are not judging people in the sense that we are creating a standard by which they do not measure up. We're simply proclaiming the word of God. Now, if you don't like that standard, you can ignore it, you can change it, or you can accuse the person of telling it to you, of being judgmental, and somehow in our society that means all the discussions are over. If, in fact, the things on this list are a sin, not my opinion that they're a sin, not your opinion, not society's opinion, but in God's judgment, these things are sins because they violate the character of God, then the most unloving thing I can do is let you think that they're not. But you see, when somebody says you are being judgmental, one of two things is true. One, you are being judgmental. What does that mean? Pushing someone else down in order to elevate yourself, which is what we're talking about in this chapter. I am pushing you down so that my guilt is made less because, well, you're, no, you're worse than I am. That's being judgmental. But when we are accused of being judgmental, it could be because we are in fact judgmental or it could be the fact that we are giving the statements of a righteous God and the world feels condemned by it. It's difficult. It's difficult because in our society that believes in relativistic morality, if you show this list to someone... They're going to argue, why do you think these things are sins? It's like I've said before, last week's lesson dealing with homosexuality. 
The question used to be, is homosexuality a sin? And we'd have a discussion based on the Bible, based on natural law, based on whatever it is, we'd have that discussion. The discussion today is, do you think homosexuality is a sin? And then we get into a discussion of why you think that particular way. It becomes a discussion of your upbringing, what's wrong with you, why do you think you are right when you are, obviously, it's all about you. Because we have denied the reality of an objective standard by which we will be judged. Why do we do that? Because God has written into our hearts that there is an objective standard and we will be judged by it and we don't like it so we ignore it or we change it or we condemn those who still hold to it. Hmm. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Aren't I better than you because I'm judging you? That's the argument here. I am superior to you because I am judging you. Is that enough? Is that enough? Well, it's enough for the moralist who believes that their knowledge of the truth, their understanding of the truth, their boldness to condemn you for breaking it, somehow sets them apart and makes them above you. But the reality is, no. Knowing the law is not sufficient. It is those who practice the law who are righteous before God. Wait a minute. Did you just... No, I didn't. Let's keep going. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Do you presume on God's kindness? What does it mean to presume? Hmm? Take for granted? Somebody else said something. Expect it? Rely on it? Take liberties with. It's a little different than relying on it. It's an expectation that if God acted, if he blinked at my sin yesterday, he will blink at my sin tomorrow and the next day and the next day, and there may not be, no, there will not be, any judgment this is an interesting discussion in our heads okay we need to think real hard about what the second half of chapter one and chapter two and chapter three are telling us you see we live in a day that we understand the end of the story right it is by grace You are saved through faith, and that is not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. What that does is produce in us the presumption 
that I can sin and not have any consequences. Either as an unbeliever or as a believer. And that is presumption. We can rely on God's promises. And God promises if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of our unrighteousness. That is a promise that God has made, and we can rely on that promise. But it is a presumption for an unbeliever to think, you know, I did something really bad yesterday, and I didn't get caught. Wow. That's cool. Tomorrow... I can do something really bad again and I probably won't get caught then. And the next day, it's I can do something really bad and I won't get caught because God doesn't care. The presumption is that because God has not punished us, God will not punish us. What we think is we've gotten away with it. Question, why doesn't God punish us the moment that we sin? Because we'd all be dead and in hell. (laughs) End of story. The day we sin... We ought to have died, physically. We ought to have gone to hell, physically. But we didn't. Why? Because God is not a God of wrath. Because God does not punish sin. Because God doesn't care what we do. No. We didn't die And we didn't go to hell because of God's kindness, his forbearance, and his patience. What is he patient for? I mean, you're patient waiting for something. He is patient to give us time to repent. To give us time to say, I shouldn't have done that. God, forgive me. And God will step in and say, sure, I'll forgive you. Presumption says, I wasn't punished because there is no punishment. That is presuming on God's patience. It is very interesting, even in the life of a believer, when we do, in fact, live a life under God's grace, sin still brings consequences. It is interesting to me. I sit here right now, and I have a sin that I committed yesterday. And I can repent, and God will forgive that sin. But if I look at 
tomorrow and say, you know, I think I'll do the same thing because it didn't affect me yesterday. I am presuming on God. I have heard believers tell believers to go ahead and sin. God will forgive you. Now, theologically, that kind of makes sense. God forgave our sins past, present, and future. But it is presumptuous of us to think that there will not be consequences of our sin. Now or in the future. God forgave David when he had Uriah killed and took his wife. He did forgive him. The consequences of it were horrible. Horrible. Do not suppose that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves that you will escape the judgment of God. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? The goodness of God is to lead us to repentance, not to make us presumptuous. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. We had this discussion two weeks ago when we started talking about God's wrath. Is God's wrath being delivered to us right now, in the here and now, in this world, or is it something that we will see at judgment day? And the answer is yes. What I, I mean, the, the picture that I use, and I realize it's a very simple picture, is that right now God is distributing his wrath with an eyedropper, a little bit. Why? Because he wants us to repent. So I'm going to show you a little bit of the future bucketfuls of God's wrath that is being stored up. I mean, let's face it, here's the picture. On a day in my life, I commit my first sin. Okay? No, it wasn't last week. (laughs) On some day in my life, I commit my first sin. And here is the wrath of God, a bucket full of the wrath of God. And he sets it over here. Why? Because he wants us to repent. The next day of my life, I sin again. I know you might find that hard to believe. And there is a bucket full of the wrath of God. And he sets it aside. Why? Because he loves me and he wants me to repent. You see where this is going, right? The next day, the next day, the next day. And every once in a while there's an eyedropper full of it that hits me so I know that sins will have consequences. But in the meantime, there are buckets and buckets and buckets of the wrath of God being stored up for judgment. I mean, you've been there before, right? 
you're driving down the highway at 72 miles an hour. The speed limit is 60. And you race by a cop sitting on the side of the road. And he doesn't come after you. And you go, whew. And if you're like me, you turn to your wife and go, I wonder how fast you'd have to be going for him to actually stop you. <laughs> but you feel like you've gotten away with it. There was a ticket that had your name written on it. It was owed to you. The law said that ticket should have been given to you, and you got away from it. And if you're like most of us, the next day, you don't spend a lot of time talking about, thinking about yesterday's potential ticket, because it's over, it's done, it's not going to happen. And that's how we think God is. I raced by God going 72 miles an hour when the speed limit is 60. He didn't give me a ticket. It's over. No. He takes that ticket and he puts it in the pile. Because you see, God doesn't wink at sin. Ever, 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 ever. It's going in the pile. It isn't that he just missed it. You know, that police officer looked away and didn't look at the radar gun while you raced by at 72 in the 60. Ah, well, he just missed it. It wasn't that he was in the middle of lunch and just didn't want to bother with it. God knows it, and it gets stored over here. I'm waiting for one of you to get really mad at me and argue about this. Let's keep going. Yes. I'm trying not to say something, but in regard to that, I'm speaking for myself. Hmm? I think I got a whole uh, 10 mile square area fence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> speed limit is from man. That is. Uh-huh. Not from God. That's right. God can, I don't know how to say this, but I mean, you know, the auto dealers made an automobile that would go a whole bunch faster. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know your example, but be clear. <laughs> your question is, why would God make an automobile that would go 72 when he only wants you to go 60? Why would God allow you to sin if he's going to judge the sin after you do it? Is that what you're asking? Do you really want it to go into Romans chapter 9 today? <laughs> go ahead, Wilton. Oh, we're not going to answer that question, though. It is the key question. His question is, 
Do you keep pouring, filling up this, these buckets of wrath until the day of judgment, or do they get written off at some point? And, and the answer is, Romans chapter 3, huh, what does it say? There is a righteousness apart from the law, but we're not going to get there for two more weeks. And that's what I'm trying to, we are so, we so understand the end of the story that sometimes we don't understand the state of humanity apart from Christ. All of that stuff that we talked about last week is not some fictional world. This chapter is not about some fictional world. This is about people trying to show that they are righteous because they judge others and they feel superior because of it. We wouldn't do that, would we? It is the world who thinks, because God didn't zap me yesterday, he's not going to zap me tomorrow. Okay, I'll tell you the end of the story. Jesus Christ hung on a cross. And God took all of these buckets of his wrath and poured them on Christ. So that you and I can be declared righteous. It isn't that there's not a bucket. It's that the bucket has been taken care of in the finished work of Jesus Christ. But that lesson's not for two or three weeks. The buckets live. The buckets exist. Hmm. This doesn't sound very good. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up for yourselves. If your heart wasn't hard, if you repented, God would forgive you. If we confess, he will forgive. But our hardened hearts say no. We look at God and say no. I know there's a judgment. I'm going to act like there's not one. I know there's a judgment, but I'm going to deny the existence of the standard. I know there's a judgment, but I'm going to change the standard to match something. In fact, I'm going to attack those people who pretend that God has a standard. And that is the hard and impenitent heart that is storing up for itself buckets of wrath until the day of wrath, which is the day of judgment. The day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. What is God's judgment is it just the fact that God gets mad, he gets ticked off, he looks at us and says, I've had enough of you. I mean, you know, the child is misbehaving over and over and over, and, okay, I won't talk about you. <laughs> I told her I would. But. 
The child is misbehaving over and over and over again, and we're ignoring it because we don't want to deal with it, and at some point we just get mad and say, Stop it! Is that what God's doing? He's just getting mad at us? No. It is his righteous judgment. It is the fact that he is a holy God and that we as created beings were created to worship, honor, and give glory to him and we have chosen to do something else. And God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each according to his works. Pay attention to verses 6 to 11. He will render to each according to his works. Wait a minute, teacher. I thought we were saved by grace. Hmm. We are, but that's in chapter 3. He will render to each according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. You ready for this? Go do what is right all the time and you will be saved. End of story. You can, in fact, be saved by good works. You just have to do them from the day you're born till the day you die and never slip up once. And you're in. It doesn't mean you just have to be a little bit better than your neighbor. It doesn't mean that you just have to be less obvious about it. There is a holy, righteous God who knows everything that you do, say, and think, and all you've got to do is never do, say, or think anything that violates the Word of God, and you're in. You will be judged on the basis of your works. Oh, gosh. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. And here's the key. For God shows no partiality. What does that mean? What is partiality? Hmm? Favoritism. Okay? My child does something and I respond to it this way. Somebody else's child does it and I'm really ticked off. Why? Because I have no relationship with them that I have with my child. I am showing favoritism. Why would we think that God shows favoritism? Well, because God likes my kind of people. The rest of the chapter is going to deal with the Jewish community. And it's simply this. Abraham was our father. God made promises to Abraham... Therefore, it doesn't matter what I do. God is going to show favoritism 
to me because I am on the inside group. God may judge those people according to their works. God may judge those based on do they do what God tells them to do, but not me because I am on the inside. I am in the select group. Now, it's a good thing that we don't act like that, right? How many people do you think there are in the United States today who think God's going to save them because they're American citizens? We, are, we live in a Christian country. Isn't that enough? How many people today think they are saved because they belong to a particular church? And I don't have to name those churches over there. I can name the churches over here. How many think they're saved because they're good Baptists? My grandmother was a good Baptist. My mother was a good Baptist. I'm a good Baptist. I'm in. No. God will not show partiality to Baptists, to Americans, to Jews, to you fill in the blank with whatever group you want. If, if you are trusting your salvation because of your membership in a group, God says no. There's going to be a judgment. That judgment is going to be based on your works. For those who do good, eternal life. For those who do evil, judgment. Long, long pause. Maybe we should just quit. But you want me to tell you the rest of the story. But you really want me to get to chapter 3. Once again, it is not that it doesn't matter whether we sin or not. It is the fact that Christ righteousness is given to us there is a righteousness that is by faith from first to last it is the righteousness of christ that is given to us romans chapter 2 is god speaking through paul telling those of us who think that because we're better than everybody else god owes it to us we're better because we're judging other people it's, we're better because we haven't done their sins. We're better because we're a part of some group. And the end result is God, through Paul, tells us God does not show partiality. Now remember this. When we get to Romans chapter 9 in about August, and it says, Jacob have I loved, Esau I have hated, and you go, wait a minute, it looks like he's showing partiality. But remember, remember, if you do what is right from the day you're born till the day you die, in thought, word, and deed, you will make it in. That is God's standard. How many people are in that group? One. And that is 
the Lord Jesus Christ. And because he is fully human and fully God, and he completed the righteous requirements of the law, he died to pay the penalty of our sins, all those buckets of wrath, he paid the penalty for that. But more than that, by his demonstration of his power in his resurrection, we can receive his righteousness. And that is the message of the book of Romans. But don't think it's because you're better at judging other people. Don't think it's because they sin worse than you. Don't think it's because you are part of some group. The only thing that will matter is your relationship with Jesus Christ. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. That is the promise that we receive because of the work of Jesus Christ. But if you think you're doing it on your own, hmm, what do you get? Tribulation and distress. What is tribulation? I mean, we talk about the great tribulation, you know, the thousand-year period. But what is, in your everyday life, what is tribulation? Trouble. Okay? Any of you have trouble? Don't we all? Tribulation and distress. That's on one side of the equation. Hmm, what's on the other? Glory, honor, and immortality. What is the difference? Self-seeking, hard, unrepentant heart. Why is Paul telling us all of this? I mean, let's, let's just get back to the bottom line. Why doesn't he just go from verse 17 of chapter 1 and skip over to chapter 3, verse 21, and skip all this horrible stuff in the middle? I mean, isn't this just because if we don't understand the horrible stuff, two things will happen. One, in our own lives, we will not appreciate the gift that God has given us. In fact, we will not appreciate it. We may not even request the gift. We, must, we might just say no. But number two, when we as believers go into a, an unbelieving world, we may begin to believe that, you know, that guy over there, I know, he, he's in some other religion, but he's the nicest guy in the world. He really is. I mean, he's nicer than my Christian buddy. Maybe he's okay. And I won't share the gospel with him because I think he's okay. And what Romans chapter 1, verse 8, 19 to Romans chapter 3, verse 20 is telling us is that apart from Christ... I'm not okay, and you're not okay. And that's why we need the gospel. Without the acknowledgement of the penalty of sin, 
people do not come to salvation. Why do they not acknowledge their sin? Because we, as all of humanity, have hard and unrepentant hearts that need the grace of God to soften them up. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace. Forgive us when we are presumptuous and begin to think that what we do, whether we obey or not, does not matter. We continue to rely on your grace and your patience and your kindness. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.